Thank you for downloading our podcast. The prophet Hosea receives a strange command from the Lord. The Lord tells him to take a woman of the night to keep it clean for the pulpit. He is to marry a woman who does not protect the marriage bed, and he is to build a house with this unfaithful woman. How can the Lord order a prophet to do something contrary to his own will? What is the purpose of this book? Overall, what is the prophet Hosea teaching us today? When we go through the prophet Hosea, there certainly are passages we can read and find where it seems that the Lord is done with his people. And it seems that there's no hope, it's just finished, and we just call it a day. And the reality is, it, it sort of leaves us with, with a question of, has, has the Lord failed? Is he incapable of bringing about his redemptive purpose in his people? We're not the first people to ask this question. Moses himself in Exodus 32 says to the Lord that what's going to happen if you strike your people dead in the wilderness, the Egyptians are going to say, here's a God who can deliver his people, but see, these people were such a problem that even God himself struck them dead. And so we're left with a question, what about the promise made to Abraham? And Isaac and Jacob, is, is the Lord serious about this? Or is the Lord powerless to make this happen? You see, when Moses comes to the Lord in Exodus 32, he reminds the Lord of that very promise that he has made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so we ourselves, as we take this to heart, and we look at passages in Hosea, we, we can wonder, what, what is the Lord truly intending to do? What, what is Israel teaching us? Is our God powerless and, and incapable of bringing in a new creation? Have we sinned to such a depth that we're beyond redemption? You can look in Hosea and maybe even think that. And so as we consider this, we'll see first God's transformation as he lays out his intention. Secondly, knowing the Lord and, and what that really means. And third, fulfilling his promise. And so let's begin with God's transformation. As I mentioned where we picked up at verse 14, uh, we did make mention of verse 14 and 15 last week. But I wanted to pick up with these verses because remember I said there's a series of therefores. So if we review what we've learned in chapter 2, uh, we have... In 2 verse 6, there's a therefore where he's hedging the way, where his people basically, they're presented as a stubborn heifer, uh, as the Lord will develop that theme in Hosea. But basically you think of a, a cow that's kind of out of control and it's bouncing between the hedge and the wall, uh, but the Lord's doing that as protection uh, to keep Israel from going back to the false gods that Israel desires. And so this is sort of the Lord's way of leading them in the wilderness and keeping them from pursuing the things they want to pursue, which is ultimately harmful and detrimental for Israel. We have that in verse 9, another therefore, where the Lord promises to strip her of all her wages and to remind her that the Lord is their God. Uh, he's the one who provides. It's not her false lovers. It's not the, the deception that Israel has fallen into. And, and remember, this isn't um, a passage where Hosea is making fun of women and, and uh, talking about superiority of men. It's important to remember that role play. Hosea takes the role of God. 
Gomer represents God's people, Israel, and Israel proper, which would include us even today as we understand uh, our potential and our desires to fall into our own idolatrous ways and trust in things other than God. But going on then in 2 verse 14, uh, Hosea gives the assurance that the Lord is going to speak tenderly. And this is something so beautiful that, that this wife who has been so unfaithful, and again, God's people being so unfaithful to the Lord, doing everything to, to turn away from the fall of Adam, telling God to get out of the Garden of Eden, the people of Israel saying, we want the Baals, we want the false gods, we don't want the true God, doing everything they can to cast away their husband. And the Lord comes back. He allures her. He doesn't just break her. Right? I mean, sometimes we say, well, God breaks his people. And God certainly can. I mean, he can break our pride. He can humble us. There's all sorts of things God can do to his people. But the beauty of this is it's not God coming as a bully, as some people say, the God of the Old Testament's mean, and he's vindictive. This isn't vindictive. This is a great passage to take someone to if they make that claim. This is the Lord wooing, dating, uh, pursuing this woman, courting this woman, and bringing her back, and, and wanting her back. I mean, it's so beautiful when you think about what the Lord is saying here, and what Israel has done, what we do to the Lord, and how he doesn't just destroy us. But this is where I wanted to pick up in verses 14 and 15 to lay out the significance of what the Lord does in the wilderness. Because we have to think of the wilderness as a time of testing. It's an important thing to remember. We went through this in Hebrews, Hebrews 3. Israel tested God. God tested Israel. And when Israel tests the Lord, it doesn't end well for them. But the promise of this wilderness is going to be in the context of what Hosea has said. Taking Israel out of the land. Removing all distractions. So Israel, God's people, as they strive with God, ultimately prevail in learning. God is our provider. God is our shield and defender. God builds his city. God secures his citizens. And so if you look at the theology of wilderness... And what this means in the Old Testament, the prophet Ezekiel speaks of Israel in the wilderness and God judging them. Now again, we think of judgment as God you know, busting us up, breaking us down. And, and to some extent, yes, his, his discipline does that. But there's something else he's doing in the midst of this that, that we lose sight of. We say, well, I don't want to fall into the disciplinary action of God. And we're going to be careful when we say that. Because when we understand discipline in the proper biblical sense of what discipline means, it means the Lord shaping his people. And so all of us have things in our Christian life. I'm sure, well, as you go through the decades, maybe as I've gone through a few decades, you, you learn that there's a few issues within you. And you kind of work through some issues and go, wow, praise God, you know, he's you know, I, I see where I've grown over the years, and then you all of a sudden realize there's more issues that you have to still work on. And it's kind of like what John Murray says. I appreciate this about sanctification. It becomes this learned ignorance, right? The more sanctified you are, the more sanctification you realize you need. 
In other words, as you grow in conformity to God, the more you marvel at his grace and mercy and how much you don't deserve to grow in his grace, have his grace, and have the Lord. And you see how much more conforming you need to do to his grace. See, that's the discipline of God, isn't it? Shaping us, molding us, teaching us, instructing us, convicting us, using things in our lives to uh, show a spotlight or shine a spotlight in things in our hearts that distract us from our God. That's what Ezekiel's talking about in the wilderness. That as the Lord is shaping his people, not only individually is he doing this, but also corporately. Because you have those who are weak, who fall off, those that are uh, not weak in the sense that they're weak Christians or, or whatever, but those who truly aren't resting in the Lord uh, are those who are purged from the midst of God's people. And so Ezekiel speaks of the wilderness as sort of a purging, a, a reshaping, a reforming, making his people stronger, even as he weans his people off of things that, that they trust in. And that's how we need to see the discipline of God. So we, we shouldn't want to run from his discipline. I mean, we, we can think of Job. Again, I think that's another helpful example. Job doesn't specifically do something to deserve what he receives. And, and Job himself has to come to grips with God, doesn't he? Because in his mind, I've lived a perfect life. And, and you hear Job's testimony, as self-righteous as it is, uh, you, you certainly hear that Job has done a lot of great things for the Lord and, and the community. But yet Job has to come to grips with an important life lesson. He is not God. God is God. We need his redemption. And the moment we step out in our own conviction that we're worthy of his love, his mercy, his grace, we have lost sight of redemption. That's what the wilderness does. It brings us to a place where the Lord knows what we need, where we are brought to a place of brokenness, where we recognize we need the Lord. And so when the Lord promises this disciplinary action on his people, leading them through the wilderness, again, it's not God being absent. It's not God abandoning his people. It's not a cold shoulder. It's done with purpose and perfection. That the Lord makes this radical promise. The valley of Achor being a door of hope. Now I want to go back to this. We made reference to it last week. But, but we really need to understand what the Lord's saying here in terms of his recreative power and his precedent. The valley of Achor means valley of trouble. And it receives its name after a particular event that has happened. The people of Israel gone into Jericho. They go into Jericho. They take Jericho. They look at Ai and they say, oh, we will take that no problem. And so they, they get puffed up in their own self-confidence. Uh, they figure out their battle plan and they go in and they take Ai and they're, they're supposed to, to destroy it and level it like they did with Jericho. That was a plan of God to purge the land of its immorality and to demonstrate and show um, the final judgment of God. This is what this wasn't to anticipate. And Israel was to be the, the ones that would exercise this by the command of God in a unique time in covenant history. Well, Israel learns that if God does not lead them into war, 
they will not have success. They're defeated. And we find that Israel learns their lesson, but they learn something else that's significant, that they're not to plunder. And that's what Achan did. He plundered from the city, and so the Lord turns his back on Israel. They have to purge the evil from their midst. This is where the valley becomes a valley of trouble. So when you hear this, this history, it's sort of a, a knife in a wound. It's sort of scraping the scab off a wound where you go, ooh, that's not a good time in our history. We, we don't want to recall that. That's not the highlights of our time. But the Lord says, listen, you brought the trouble. What does the Lord do in his transforming power? He takes this trouble and he opens it to a whole new identity. And it becomes a door of hope a door of entrance into his heavenly city and his redemptive purpose. And there's this promise then that Israel is going to turn to the Lord. And as Israel turns to the Lord, there's going to be this renewal. Like where Israel had this, this joy of being delivered from the hand of God, from the land of slavery. And knowing that God is their God and their, the Lord is the one who will bring them into the land. So when we look at verses 14 and 15, we understand this transformative power of God, this, this promise that God makes, that his people have this renewed zeal, will undergo a new exodus, and will have this hope. But we go on, and, and we find that there's this call for us to know the Lord. So we look at verses 16 through 20. And we have this language that as the Lord declares, something's going to happen and it's in that day, verse 16. Now, in that day is something that's rather significant. I used to just take this reference as only to the day of the Lord. And that's certainly there. Uh, no doubt. I mean, when you look at the prophets, they mention the day. You think of the, the day of the Lord, uh, where the Lord brings his reckoning, brings his redemption. You think of Pentecost. You think of Joel 2 and that promise there. Spirit poured out, cleansing fire, all the manifestations of the redemptive blessings of God being confirmed, being applied in that moment. But there's something else in that day. That in that day, we, we think of a, a time of change. So we think about the Lord in that day and entering into his day of rest. Uh, we think of Genesis 2 verse 2 after he finishes this creation. We think about the warning that the day you eat of it, you will surely die. In other words, there's going to be a decisive moment. You know life as it is. You eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You're going to know immediately at that time that something has changed. That, that the day will have something distinctive that you look back on and say, that day was significant. Change the course of history. And so when, when Satan gives that deception, what do we find? Well, we find that the eat of the tree, it's, uh, that what was pleasing to the eye, isn't very pleasing. The couple that was naked and unashamed is all of a sudden naked and ashamed. Uh, they understand shame. They understand guilt. They don't want to be in the presence of God. Something changed on that day. And so here we have this promise that there's going to be a particular point, a particular day in history that the Lord lays out. And there's going to be something different. That Israel, as they join together, is going to understand who they really are. That they're going to refer to my husband as the Lord. 
Now, there's an important transition that goes on here in the Hebrew language. In the Hebrew language, Baal and the word yish used here for husband both have a connotation of husband. But there's a difference. Baal is more of a master in the sense of a possessor where he sees his wife as a possession, something that he owns. Uh, whereas Yish is more of a, uh, an interaction where the husband and wife is more like a Genesis 2 sort of scenario where they join together, they, they love one another. There's that working together as a team. And so what the Lord is doing is right here, he's saying there's going to be this clear transformation. Where you said, my Baal, meaning my master, I'm, I'm lorded over by this God of my own creation, which is kind of ironic, isn't it? That here there's a God that they worship that owns them, but really they own this God. It, it sort of shows the absurdity of idolatry and ultimately the absurdity of sin. But nevertheless, this is the reality of their orientation. They will transform from my, from my Baal to my Ish, where they'll have my husband knowing my husband, that there's going to be this interaction with God that is going to be very distinctive, very glorious, that they're no longer going to want to be mastered by their idolatry, but they're going to want to be united in serving their true God once for all. But he goes on, he says, I will remove the names of the Baals from her. And they say, well, what, what does this mean, the names of the Baals? I mean, we, we know that the Lord has promised to judge the feast days, verse 13, and what they have done and, and going to take the feast days away from Israel. But think about some of the names we know in Israel's history. We think of Esh Baal. Man or Baal, literally, First uh, Chronicles 8, verse 33. We have Merab Baal, striving with Baal. First uh, Chronicles 8, verse 34. Jerob Baal, where you have Gideon, uh, where Baal is going to contend and strive with him. Baal can strive or contend for himself. And probably one of my favorite ones, Baalzebub, or Beelzebub, as we bring it into English which literally means Lord of the Dung, to put it politely. And that's in uh, Matthew 10, verse 25. And so the point is, there are these different names of Baal. Uh, there have been people in the genealogy, as we read in Chronicles, where Baal is part of their identity, part of their name. And so when the Lord says, I'm going to wipe out Baal, this goes back to what we find with Achan. Uh, when he's stoned, uh, when there's a monument, it's wiping his name out of the land, wiping his legacy out of the land. That's the promise here, that the legacy of Baal will be wiped out in such a way they're not going to remember him anymore. They're not going to know him. They're not going to desire him. But we go on then as we find in verses 19 and 20, as the Lord certainly makes his covenant, as he makes his universal covenant, promises the world peace, promises his everlasting kingdom. But we find here that there's this promise of the Lord marrying us, betrothing them. That this betrothing and, and marriage is that reminder of the Lord uh, taking us as his bride once again. Remembering his mercy. Remembering who he is. What he has promised to do. 
the meditations on this great thing of the Lord's accomplishment. But this betrothing is something that's also a legal arrangement. This is something where there's a precedent that we find with Israel and the way that this would happen where the husband would come to the bride's family. It's a rather beautiful thing that the Lord's saying here. And as the husband would come to the bride's family, there, there would be this promise of what the husband brings to the table because, you know, the father of the bride would be like, how are you going to care for my daughter? Are you going to love her? Are you going to care for her? Are you going to provide for her? What kind of husband are you going to be? And so there's a legal transaction where the husband would enter into this uh, legal agreement with the father. And, and once he agrees to this, there's going to be this, this union, this legality, where the husband is legally obligated to take this wife into his home and to care for her and provide for her and, and to truly be a man uh, that honors her in a very loving way. And so when the Lord says, I will betroth her to me, think about what the Lord is saying in the precedent of, Gen of Hosea 2, the precedent of what the Lord has seen in Genesis 3, what he has seen with his people. We've turned away from God. We rebelled against God. We said, we don't want you. We, we've played the gomer, the harlot. We pursued all the other gods. And yet the Lord says, I will come to my people. I will again woo them. I will enter this legal obligation where I will take them to me. I will betroth them in my mercy and my steadfast love and my justice. Which means that the Lord is doing this all above board. There's nothing where he cuts any corner, anything that's immoral. Everything is above board. It's righteous, it's good, it's wholesome, it's holy. Everything that marriage is supposed to be. But he goes on and he says as he does this that he's going to betroth us in faithfulness. It's going to be something that endures forever. There's no end. But the promise of we will know the Lord. There's a significance here. Because so often we can think of knowledge as something we acquire. And that's certainly part of knowledge. I mean, we, we have to have knowledge of the true God, don't we? we? We have to have knowledge of what he has instructed in his word. We, we need to know our doctrine. I, I'm not denying any of that. But the knowing of the Lord is part of why I want to read through James as we're going through Hosea. Now again, James gets a bad rap. People say that he's all about works righteousness. If you really read him in context, what is he teaching? He's saying that, that when we know the Lord, there's something that impacts us, right? There's, there's a different motivation for our life. Uh, our catechism, I love how it puts it, we, we live out of gratitude, right? We, we live as living sacrifices unto the Lord. Paul, Romans 12, speaks of a Christian metamorphosis where we, we taste the blessings of the Spirit and they transform us. That this marriage, this, this betrothing, this, this entrance into this relationship is going to have this finality in, in such a way that this new exodus, this new life that is ours is a life where we will be shaped and molded and we will see the beauty of our God. We, we won't just know him in the sense that we're morally persuaded that he is God. We will know him in the sense that we walk as he is our shield and defender. We walk in the confidence that living a life to conformity and giving ourselves over to the spirit 
It's not a wasted effort. It's not a wasted endeavor. It's something where we understand it's the only true way to have life and to truly have it and live it to the fullest. It's in the Lord, our Creator, our Redeemer, the one who has redeemed us and walks with us by his steadfast love and mercy. This is one of the things that Israel is teaching us. We don't bring this in by our own strength. We don't accomplish this by our own doing. It is the Lord who transforms us. We are called to know him, to pursue him, to strive with him. Again, this isn't us testing him, but it's with us continually coming before his gracious altar submitting to him, desiring his leadership, his providential care, and waiting upon him, living in the confidence that he truly is God and we are his redeemed. But Hosea goes on because he wants us to understand how significant this is in the Lord's promise. And again, just uh, reviewing basically 21 through 23 is an overturning of what he has given in the previous chapter in terms of the curse. But in terms of this future promise in this day, we've already covered this. It's a day of transformation, something definitive that happens. But it's the understanding that the Lord is the one who is going to be answering from the heavens and the earth. So now this is something that we may kind of scratch our heads and say, what in the world does that mean? And praise God, we, we don't know, because it means that the name of Baal has been stricken from us. But Baal's the god of the storm, right? And so why is Israel trying to appease Baal? Because they want rain for their crops. We, we can, when we put it in that context, Baal worship doesn't seem so absurd anymore. We, we can understand that temptation. If I appease this god, I can have a successful crop. And the Lord's saying, that's your problem. You appeal to your own desires and your own definitions for life. But on that day, I will transform you, making it explicit like, hey, um, like uh, Gomer trying to look to her lovers for her provision. Lord says, no, I'm taking those wages away. I'm going to teach her that I am the one who provides. That's basically what verse 21 means. You don't need Baal. Don't be tempted to look to Baal. Look to me. I am the God who provides and cares for this creation. Believe it, live in light of it. I do not turn my back on my creation. That's what the Lord is assuring in verse 21. Ripping the wages uh, from the unfaithful wife and teaching her that being betrothed to her first husband is truly the way of life. And so it's us learning being betrothed and united to our Lord is life. And so there is that promise. And so there's that promise of fertility and what's going on in terms of the Lord's provision of the land. But now when we go in verse 23, I want to explore a little more of the name Jezreel. We're familiar that it means scatter, right? And so we've covered this name, that it can mean scatter in the sense of spreading seed in a good sense. And it also means scattered in the sense of, of wilderness, of exile, of being scattered to the nations, dispersion, uh, as we find in the New Testament with James, with his greeting, that we are the dispersed people. But Jezreel is also something that becomes a bit of a pun. Uh, because if you say this word quickly in the Hebrew language, you have Israel, Jezreel. So you can hear sort of that play. 
that Israel, Jezreel, Israel becomes Jezreel. And so these names become interchangeable. Now what was a curse, Israel, Jezreel being scattered and spread throughout the world, now we have this blessing that Jezreel, Israel will be in the land. They will truly experience the prosperity of God. And so Israel takes on this name of blessing, abundance, growth, uh, a just blessing from God is the intention here. So when he says, I will sow for myself in the land, that's what this means. Israel, Jezreel is rooted in the land, rooted in a place where they're no longer going to be uprooted in finding true life. Now he goes on, we know this transformation, lo rachamah, which means no mercy. Now it's rachamah, which means now he will have mercy. It's a beautiful declaration. It's so humbling as well, isn't it? Because we recognize that if the Lord does not have mercy upon us, we cannot come into his presence. But it's a reminder that the Lord is going to have mercy upon us. The Lord gives this new life, gives this rootedness to his people so they are established in his holy city. This is where we think about where we started in our call to worship with the celebration of walking through the Red Sea and the Song of Moses in Exodus 15. That, that joy of looking to the land, being rooted in the land. It's our perspective today. But this mercy leads to the other beautiful promise. You move from lo ami to ami. A promise of not my people to being my people. The Lord's covenantal purpose that he's made to Abraham finds its establishment, finds its life. And it's a reminder then when we consider what the Lord is doing here. When you think about Israel and its uniqueness as a national people, place in a land, Paul himself speaks of this as being a pedagogue teaching us uh, so that we learn truly how to behave and, and to function, which is that play there. We think of Abram himself and how James appeals to that precedent of how Abram lived his life in light of the confidence of the Lord. He had his ups and downs, there's no doubt. But the overall trajectory, what do we find with Abraham? He learns that the Lord is his shield and defender. I go back again to the story of Jacob and the origin story of Israel, the true origin story, that sometimes we, we can minimize the significance of Jacob wrestling with God, that strength comes through weakness. We find something about ourselves through the prophet Hosea, don't we? And it's something that we're not proud of as humans, or we shouldn't be. It's a reality that as the Lord blesses us, we are so quick to say, look at what my hands have done. Look at how blessed I am from God, and look at how holy and good I am, right? Job, it's Job's whole speech. And the Lord is one that when he takes these things from us in various ways, however that may look, whatever that, however that works out. You know, I remember one of my professors who was going through a tough time or a tough season in life, and he said, you know, you know when the Lord's hand is upon you. And you start learning the life lessons he intends to teach you. And it's, it's not that he was doing anything deviant or 
anything that was, you know, you'd go, whoa, how could he still be a professor? It wasn't anything like that. But it was basically him saying, you know, I, I just realized I don't appreciate my family. And he's going through all these things where he wasn't seeing the blessings of God as he should see them. And so there were things he was going through where Lord, the Lord was just reminding him. See what I've given you. Look at these great things. And he said, you know, when, when you go through it, it's not always fun. But when you get through it, you truly learn something about God you've never learned before. That's what Hosea is telling us and teaching us. With Israel going in the wilderness, Israel goes into the land, falls into all these idolatrous relationships, and it's the Lord pulling them back and saying, look, you need to know who your husband is. You need to know your Lord. You need my recreative act. You need new life, and you need to walk in this new life. Isn't this what the Apostle Paul exhorts us as he reminds us? We're a wilderness people. Hebrews reminds us we're a wilderness people. James reminds us we're a wilderness people. It's not to say every day of our life is dusty and miserable. But it's an understanding that it is a time of testing to shaping, to molding, to conforming us to the Lord's purpose. And here we have the big picture of the Lord's intention. We are not a people who meander. We are not a people without a God. We are not a people without a shepherd. We are not a people without a true king. But we are a people who are being led, shepherded, and guided by the true king and his providential care. And we are going to a physical kingdom. We realize it today spiritually. But we're going to the true physical kingdom of heaven. This is where the Lord is promising to plant us, where we will be betrothed to him forever, where we will be rooted in a place where no nation will carry us away. And the beauty of revelation, that the gates are left open because no one's dumb enough to come against the city. No enemy will rise up and there is no enemy that we have to fear. There's a promise of dwelling in the presence of God forever. But the promise here is even in the midst of our wilderness time, our time on this earth as we're mere sojourners and wanderers, we know that the Lord is walking in our midst, shaping us, molding us, guiding us, leading us, bringing us to where we are called to go. So when we think about Moses turning to the Lord in the wilderness and saying, Lord, if you strike your people dead, it seems as if your covenantal promises have failed. Hosea is saying there is such a bigger picture than what we understand. <clears throat> Excuse me. We do not see the full picture of God's purpose. That's what Hosea is laying out to us. We can't take the wilderness time and say, oh, it's just a time of cursing. It's miserable. It's just suffering. No, it's a time where the Lord is shaping us, instructing us, teaching us to truly know who the Lord is. He is our provider. He is the one who gives life. He is a giver of all good things. He is the one who has ultimately given us his son who confirms this day as a definitive day. We are assured the promises of God have not fallen flat. We will enter into his eternal rest because a true Joshua has secured the eternal land. Let us then sojourn 
and the confidence and knowledge of our God, truly knowing him as scripture intends, not about him, but truly knowing him, and that we walk in conformity to our Lord as those united and seated with Christ, having new birth by the redemptive action of God and being betrothed to our great King forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope that you were edified and encouraged this gospel message. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing confessional church that is based in Belgrade, Montana. Please visit our webpage, urcbelgrade.com. That is urcbelgrade.com to find out more information about our church and utilize our sermon archive. Most of all, we hope to see you sojourning and fellowshipping with us each Sunday. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.